from St. John's Gospel, Jesus said to her, Mary, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Alleluia, Christ is risen. Man, that is kind of weird. <laughs> every, you may, if you are an Anglican, you know uh, that every Sunday on an Easter ser sermon, the priest gets up and says, Alleluia, Christ is risen. And the congregation says, The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. It's an old, comes out of the Greek Orthodox Church, but it's meant to be a shout of triumph and victory and passion. And uh, in fact, Kathy, remember, I had a, a guy in a former parish of mine that I would get up without fail every Easter Sunday and say, Alleluia, the Lord is risen. And he would shout at the top of his lungs, the Lord is risen indeed, Alleluia. And his face would turn red. And I thought every year, man, Bob's going to have a stroke. But here we are, right? Here we are in a largely empty building. And our shout of victory, I mean, and this is no criticism. There's only 15 of us in this room, 10 technically. Uh, it's awfully quiet. There's no brass section. There's no strings. There's no 1,500 people on Easter Sunday here. No grand celebration like years past. And I will tell you, and I'm sure this is true for you, that this is a bit of a stretch for me, right? It's a little, we were just in the sacristy coming out and the altar party. We said, you know, this is kind of, um, it's kind of surreal. But you know, I've been saying all Holy Week, because this has been going on all week, right, since Palm Sunday all the way through, I think we always as Christians have to see everything, even suffering, maybe even mostly suffering, see, see everything in our lives as an opportunity, as an opportunity to learn to trust God more and more, and to maybe see things from a different angle than we're used to. Maybe, maybe, this quiet this small number here in situ, or if you're at home with us on the camera over there, I can't see you, but you can see me. Maybe you're home with your family, or you're by yourself, or you're with a couple of friends, or I know some families were joining, we're going to be worshiping online with us here, even though the families themselves are spread around the country. It's kind of a cool thing, think about it. As we all gathered here, even though we're remote, but the fact is every single one of us is gathered here either alone or in a very, very small group. And I want to submit to you, I've been praying about this, man, and I think there's a reason for it. There's a purpose to it. And I'll say this, if you think about it, there's a good precedent. After all, <laughs> the first proclamation of Easter, he is risen, was heard by exactly one person, Mary Magdalene, early in the morning, by herself, while it was dark, while she was alone. Mary discovers the tomb is empty, it's open, and it's empty, neither of which are good signs, right? And her first reaction is not, Alleluia, Christ is risen, but, oh my goodness, Christ is taken. They think he's been stolen, and who wouldn't, right? You know, funny thing, in the first century, dead people stay dead, just like now. And so Mary goes and sees that Jesus' body has gone, and she assumes that someone has taken the body. Nobody expected, nobody expected, the Greeks or the Jews expected Jesus to rise from the dead. 
And she runs back and she tells Peter and the other disciple, who, by the way, is John. It's John's gospel. He always refers to himself in humility as the other disciple. It's John. Peter and John run to the tomb, and they go in, right? Peter goes in head first, like that's kind of what Peter does, right? And Mary just stands outside the tomb by herself in the dark, weeping. Just to hear that. Mary is uh, socially isolated. Mary's by herself, right? It's not some great big entourage, some great big brass section raising triumph. No, she's by herself and she is crying because she thinks her friend's body has been stolen. And friends, so while I do love Big Easter, man, I love leading worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ, celebrating the victory of Jesus over death itself, thanks be to God, brass and big choirs and the whole thing. The reality is, Easter happens one soul at a time, one intimate contact at a time, one intimate contact with Jesus at a time, just like we see with Mary. Do you see what he said to her? He doesn't, he says to her, Mary, her name. Then she sees him. Let's, let's look at this a minute. So, so the question, the biggest question of all for a lot of people and if you're kind of new to Christianity, you're not even a Christian. A lot of people are watching this online. What's, did it really happen? You know, what is, did, is, is Easter a real, did some guy, some Jewish guy named Jesus of Nazareth really rise from the dead of his own power? It is the most important question you will ever ask. Your life depends upon it. The Christian faith, friends, stands or falls on the truth claim of the resurrection. St. Paul actually admits this. This is no secret. Paul says, he says, point blank, man, if Jesus has not been raised, then you, y'all, second person plural, are still in your sins and your faith is in vain. In other words, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, man, then we are all a bunch of suckers and you and I are wasting our time. But if it did happen, if Jesus Christ conquers death itself, then that changes absolutely everything, doesn't it? It has to. So did it happen? Well, look at a couple of brief things, a big question. Let's look at a, look at a couple of things. Uh, let's look at the biblical evidence first, just briefly here. Uh, the biblical evidence of the, of the resurrection. You know, when I was a 20-year-old man, uh, I didn't believe any of this Christianity stuff. I thought it was all kind of made up. I thought Jesus was a nice guy, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, you know, that kind of thing. I, I sort of thought of Christians as like, you know, Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, you know, oh, fiddly-dee kind of thing. Sort of these Christians were these hopelessly naive, uh, too-good-for-the-world, goody-two-shoes folks who really just couldn't deal with reality. Man, was I wrong, and I repent. But, you know, the thing which really got me, one of several things, is that the people in the story of Easter Sunday, in fact, all Scripture, the people in the stories themselves are just so incredibly normal. I'll give you an example. Let's go back to Mary Magdalene, right? The first person to meet Jesus raised from the dead. I mean, stop and think, right? If you are going to make this Easter thing up, why you would want to do that, I have no idea. To gain power? Yeah, right, they all got killed, okay? To get money, of course, they all lost all their stuff. There's no incentive to make it up, but say you were going to make it up, right? Say you're going to fake this resurrection thing. Listen, 
Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene is the very last person you are going to use as your star witness for a couple of reasons. A, she's a woman, and in the first century, a woman, as a Jew, or even as a Roman, a Roman was not allowed to testify in a court of law. Her testimony was not considered reliable. That's strike number one. Strike number two against Mary as your star witness is that Mary, man, she was a train wreck. She had issues, right? We don't exactly know what they were. It doesn't take a whole lot of guessing to probably figure it out. But, but the Bible says that Jesus had cast out many demons from her, and everybody knew that. And so the question that occurred to me all those years ago when I dismissed Christianity for so long, and I actually began to think about this a little bit, and I said, man, if Mary is a train wreck and she's a woman who you'd never use as your star witness, if somebody was in fact making this up for some strange reason, who knows why, you wouldn't use Mary Magdalene as your star witness. The only reason to use her, you see, biblically, is if what she said was, was true. Well, I'll give you another short example. Look at Peter. Peter, right? The guy who speaks first and thinks later, right? Peter, who denies Jesus three times just a week earlier. <laughs> the most unreliable, until now, man in his repertoire. If you're going to make this stuff up, I mean, you don't use Peter. The very last people that you use, if you are making up this resurrection story, if you're going to fake it for some reason, the very last people that you'd think to use are Mary and Peter, and yet the Bible uses them. And the question is, why? For a purely historical, critical way, why would you use these men and women as people that testify? The only reason, the only reason you would do it is if what they said was true. What about the non-biblical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus? You know, Bishop N.T. Wright, who I'm a big fan of, uh, he is the retired bishop of Durham in England. He's got a great big book called The Resurrection of the Son of God. If you're curious about this topic, it's a great book. It's not a hard read. Nobody expected Jesus to rise from the dead. Nobody. But one thing he says here is that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead took everybody by surprise, clearly. Nobody thought, you know, dead people stay dead, right? But Wright says, if you look at the historical evidence, the historical written account, he says, and this is outrageous, N.T. Wright says, there is more evidence that Christ was raised from the dead than that Julius Caesar was the emperor of Rome. Or maybe another way to look, look at the personalities of the people involved, right? The apostles, right? This very same gaggle of losers that followed Jesus up until Good Friday, then they scattered like rats. Yeah, they stayed with him at the Last Supper because they thought they were going to enter Jerusalem and conquer the thing. And then as soon as he gets uh, arrested and tried, man, they, they, they fly. They remain scattered. But, and here's the thing that got me, over time, each of these men, in the, in the next couple of weeks in Easter season, the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at these stories. Each of these men, Thomas was one of them, for example, they meet the risen Christ. And each of these cowards claimed to have seen him, that he was dead and has now been raised. And listen, even, and these men, every single one of them, every single one except for John, was arrested, tortured, and killed for claiming that they saw Jesus alive. Why would you do that if it wasn't true? Peter, the very same man who betrayed Christ three times, Peter was crucified because he refused to recant that he met Jesus rise from the dead. Peter was crucified upside down. 
rather than recount his claim that he had met the resurrected Jesus. Or, it's not just the 12, man. Later on, Paul says that there were over 500 people at once that saw Christ raised from the dead. And Paul even says, you can go ask him yourself. Friends, the interesting thing, the people that met him, nobody ever, ever denied it, even to the point of being crucified upside down, flayed alive, boiled in oil, eviscerated, you name it. The Romans were good at lots of things, and killing people was one of them. Friends, men and women will not die for a lie. Men and women will not die for a lie. Something changed them. And if you look at the historical evidence that we have, you have got to ask the question, why were these people changed? What transformed them? Well, maybe it's what they told you transformed them, and that is that they met the resurrected Christ. These people, these men and women, were transformed from fearful men and women living fear in their lives to men and women who were so changed by meeting Jesus that no thing and no person could stop them. Arrest, torture, imprisonment, they would not recant. How do you explain that? This is the thing that got me in my, when I was 24, 25. How do you explain it? You've got to have an answer. Simple. They really saw it. It's the only answer that fits the data. They really saw him. Friends, people will not die for something they know is not true. Men and women will not die for a lie. I wouldn't, and neither would you. And that brings me to my final piece of evidence, and then I want to wrap up, and it's this, and it's, it's the biggest of all three. The personal. If you think about it, if you think about it, right, all truth claims are validated by personal experience. What is, that's, a, that's a fancy way of saying, until you experience something firsthand, you only ever hear it from somebody else's point of view, right? Until, until you experience something firsthand, it's only information. It's not real until you experience it viscerally. All truth claims, everything, every truth claim is made real by personal experience. I was telling the guys in the back earlier, six years ago, I went to a place called Iceland. It's a big frozen country in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, right? I read about Iceland. I saw pictures of it. I talked to people who had been there, but it wasn't real until I went there, right? All truth claims are validated by personal experience. I'll give you an example. I remember once as a kid, <laughs> I was driving in my, with my mom in the car, and she had on the radio, you know the little radios the center console with the knobs on them? Nobody has those anymore, but we did back then. And, uh, and there was a song that came on the radio. I was probably six or seven years old. And it was a, song, it was a love song that came on the radio. And I think it was, uh, I Can't Smile Without You by Barry Manilow. <laughs> Can't smile. I'm not going to do it. Maybe later on, Anthony, you could sing that for us. Anyway, I think it was Barry Manilow. I don't know exactly what it was. Can't smile without you. And I thought to myself, as a seven-year-old boy, Man, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Right? <laughs> Love somebody, can't smile without you. What? I'm perfectly happy playing with my Legos and my Tonka trucks. Ah. That was until I grew up, grew up and fell in love with a girl in a hot pink ski jacket named Kathy Faulkner, who I later married. And then I knew, right, experientially, I knew what it was like to be in love because I had heard about it from Barry Manilow. <laughs> I'd heard about it from other people, but it's not so you experience it firsthand that it becomes real. Friends, 
you have to experience something firsthand for it to become real, and it's no different with the Christian faith. You can look at the evidence for the resurrection, which most people would say is irrefutable. You can look at the data. You can ask other Christians whose lives have been changed and are being changed. You can see changes in people's lives that have, given their, that have come to the Lord or that are being changed, right? We're all works in progress, God knows. But it's not until you decide to believe, to step out in faith, that the resurrected Christ becomes real to you, that he moves from being an idea, a concept, to a person, Jesus, who will change your life for good. And the crazy thing, you've got to make it even stranger as we, go, we wrap up here on this Easter Sunday, the crazy thing is that Jesus says if he rose from the dead, that means that he will raise you too. That if Jesus says if he rose from the dead, he's conquered it, he will raise you too and you will join him in heaven because he has paid the price for your sins. And friends, if that fact is true, and it is, that changes absolutely everything. If death no longer has any ultimate consequence to you and me, that changes absolutely everything. You know, right now we are in the midst of a pandemic. That's why we have nobody here. People are edgy. People are scared. I want you to consider something tonight. If Jesus conquered death, then what really is there to fear? If Jesus conquered death itself, what are you afraid of? Death? Bring it, Paul says. Bring it. Oh, death, where is thy victory? Oh, death, where is thy sting? Paul famously says, look, friends, if this resurrection is real, then there is nothing, nothing can stop you, just like the apostles and the Christians in the first century. This Easter, friends, this Easter, <laughs> think of, if I leave you with one thing, stay with this. This Easter, for, in my experience, and probably in yours, is like no other Easter except, I think, for the first one. Where we are here in solitude and confronted with the risen Christ, and we have to decide for ourselves if we would believe it. No more hiding in the back row, no more coming with your family and friends, sitting over there where you're hoping you can't wait for the preacher to wrap up so you can go to brunch. Nope. Today we are confronted with the facts, and we are given a chance and an opportunity to decide. Are we going to live in fear, or are we going to live in victory? Where Jesus meets us, not in the crowd, but in our isolation, in our solitude, in our fear and our loneliness, just like Mary Magdalene on that morning, and he calls her by name, Mary. Friends, this Easter calls each of us, he calls you, you and me, personally, intimately, to the adventure of a lifetime to follow Jesus who died for you, to follow the Jesus who was dead, but has been raised. Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.